0: I am Casey Hunt, and this is CNN Tonight. Police have identified the five people who were killed in the mass shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs and released their pictures this evening. Daniel Aston, Raymond Green Vance, Kelly Loving, Ashley Paw and Derek Rump. Our deepest condolences to their loved ones. They have also named the two heroes being credited with taking down the gunman and saving so many lives. They are Thomas James and Richard Fierro a U.S. Army vet who says he went into combat mode as bullets were flying. John Berman just spoke with him. Watch.
1: I saw the ACU pattern uh, flak vests. And for me, that was like, there's a handle. I'm getting it. So I ran across the room, grabbed the handle, pulled him down, and then started to, uh, well, actually, I think I went for his gun with him. His rifle flew in front of him. um, And the young man that tried to jump in there with me, he he we both either pulled him down or whatever but he ended up at his head uh and right next to the ar and then with the ar he we i told him push the ar get the ar away from him the kid pushed the ar I, I don't know what his name was um and then i i proceeded to take his other weapon the pistol and then just start hitting him where i could i lost my kid's boyfriend i tried i tried to have everybody in there i still feel bad that there's five people there. There's five people that didn't come home. And this guy, this guy, I told him while I was eating, him, I said, I'm gonna kill you, man, because you tried to kill my friend. One of the, uh, the performers was walking by when the kid was getting tired of kicking. And she, she helped and kicked him with the, the high heels that she had on. I'm not a hero. I'm just a guy that wanted to protect his kids and his wife. And I still didn't get to protect her boyfriend.
0: Wow. What an incredible story. Authorities did not release very many new details about the shooting in the update they gave tonight, but they did mention a tip line that's been set up by the FBI so that the public can help in their investigation. They also said suspect Anderson Lee Aldrich has not yet been charged. He is in custody but remains hospitalized. Online court records show the 22-year-old is facing multiple murder and hate crime charges, but the DA of El Paso County in Colorado says the counts aren't finalized and are still under review.
2: It's important that if we have enough evidence to support bias-motivated crimes, to charge that. It's important for this community. It's important for the prosecution effort.
0: Law enforcement says Aldrich had an AR-style weapon and a handgun on him at the scene of the crime. They've encountered this suspect before. Last year, after a bomb threat, police engaged with him in a standoff. CNN has obtained new video of that incident.
1: This is your boy. I've got the heads outside. Look at that. They got a beat on me. You see that right there? The heads got their rifles out. If they breach, I'm going to blow it to holy hell.
0: Yikes. And then there's what happened this weekend. And we don't know yet if that is in fact a hate crime or what the motive was. But it certainly comes at a time when hate is on the rise in this country. This has led the president of GLAAD to say, quote, there is a direct link between the violence committed against our community and the hateful rhetoric spewed daily by anti-LGBTQ politicians and extremists. There have been a record number of anti-LGBTQ bills introduced this year in, the, in state houses nationwide. Joining me now, CNN National Security Analyst Juliette Kayyem and CNN political commentators Hillary Rosen and Scott Jennings. Thank you all for joining me tonight. And I want to start with Juliette as we sort of set the stage here. You heard the district attorney say that they are still collecting evidence to try and figure out whether this mass shooting can be charged, can be considered a hate crime. Earlier today, he told CNN that there is already some evidence pointing to that. Let's take a look at that and then we'll talk about it.
2: Location is some evidence, Uh, the fact that these victims were in a specific location that is predominantly frequented by members of the LGBTQ community. That is evidence uh, that we can use towards that, um, towards the uh, decision of, of filing bias motivated crimes. But we're looking for other evidence as well as
0: that. So can you walk us through what the investigation might look like and tell us what kinds of evidence that they will be looking for, especially to charge uh, for a hate crime?
3: Yeah. So first of all, we don't know if he's speaking or we know that he's not speaking now, but he may eventually. So uh, whatever he says will be relevant. And then, of course, whatever trail he left. And there'll be two pieces to this. One will be, uh, did he uh, did he say anything, do anything with other family members, with friends that would then leave witnesses who can uh, testify that he had animus, had targeted uh, the bar had targeted the community. The other is of course is online presence. So what is what is online? What what caused him to be radicalized? You know, with just within a year he's attacking his mother. This is the case that we know about he's he's focused on sort of a family issue. Within a year that becomes a, a mass killing which which we have to remind everyone Could have been so much worse. I mean, you know, over over a dozen people have bullet wounds. They were just lucky that they're alive. And so, uh, and so, what what radicalization happened? Did it happen online? And who was he following? Who was he communicating with? That will capture the picture. I was surprised. I'll be honest with you. I was surprised they didn't charge today. Uh, These cases can can you can start with the hate crime. Uh, uh But I would suspect uh that they will likely do it in the next day or two if they have evidence uh that this was targeted uh because of the kind of bar it was and it's hard to believe it wasn't It was a unique bar, not many uh, gay L- lgbtq uh, bars in the community it wasn't like he randomly showed up at a bar and decided to to shoot who who was in it.
0: Right. No, of, of, of course. And you mentioned this earlier, but I'm, I'm curious how you think it will affect this. The fact that the suspect is refusing to speak to police. Yeah. How does that play into this decision not to charge it, do you think?
3: And so it may be that that's it may be that he might be willing to speak or that uh, other members of his family uh, will speak. Remember, the mother likely or we, we, the mother did not file charges against him a year ago when he was violent towards her. She will not speak to the media or to or to law enforcement now. But there might be other family members. But we would anticipate that he's he's not going to speak. He is uh, uh, he's going to get lawyers. And and we can't imagine I can't imagine a narrative coming from him. So then really what you're looking for is narratives about his his hate towards the LGBTQ community, either that he said to other people or that he's left online. So Hillary Rosen,
0: the reality here w- whether or not this is deemed a bias motivated crime, it doesn't affect the sentencing in Colorado. So this man is going to face significant jail time no matter what happens. But how important is this distinction to the LGBTQ plus community, that it is recognized as a hate crime? Uh, as we know, from a law enforcement perspective, they're saying right now they don't have that. But as we all look at this, we understand that the people that were targeted here are members of a community.
4: Well, it's important and it's, it's particularly important in Colorado and in Colorado Springs because Colorado Springs has actually been a hotbed for many, many years of anti-LGBTQ Um, rhetoric activity, you know, in the 90s, it was sort of the one of the first places that that uh, created referendums, anti-gay referendums. And so there is this history locally. The local Republican members of Congress have been very vocal against the community. And so I think it feels particularly um, scary and personal for for members in Colorado. But look, I I don't want to be glib about this. I don't. You know, I, I, I'm I'm a, a gay and I I stand in solidarity with those children in Uvalde and the, you know, the shoppers in the supermarket in Buffalo and the folks in the movie theater. I mean, we have to look at what these crimes, these mass shootings have in common. And the thing that they have in common isn't hate. There is a lot of hate in the world and there's a lot, you know, there are a lot of mentally ill people. But what what we have in common here in these mass shootings are high-capacity magazines and, and and guns and, you know, the easy access to them. And I think until we actually face that, we're not going to stop this. We, we don't do mental health resources, but if we don't deal with the um, capacity to go in and shoot 40 people in the scope of 10 minutes, we're never going to solve this problem.
0: Right. There's, of course, the, the motivation uh, for whoever is committing the attack, and then also the means. Uh, And there are different ways to address those two things. I mean, Scott, the the reality is that the attack at Club Q happened on the eve of the Transgender Day of Remembrance. And while this motive is still under investigation, we do know that 2021 was the deadliest year on record for trans and non-binary people. And there are a lot of people pointing fingers at the political rhetoric on the right, like that coming from Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, who represents uh, this uh, the the uh, western half of Colorado. I mean, what do you say to, to that?
2: Well, number one, I, I'd like to learn more about this guy's history. I don't know what his motivations are. I'd prefer to wait for the police. Number two, I'd like to know more about what happened last year uh, and why he wasn't held or charged in, in that incident. I mean, it strikes me that Uh, The quickest way to have kept him from getting a gun would be for him to have fallen under Colorado's red flag law, which I guess wasn't possible because he was ultimately not adjudicated last year on the on the issue with his mother. So that's the second thing. The third thing is I don't know of any Republican politicians that are advocating violence. There are certainly Republican politicians that are have strong policy differences with, uh, you know, Democrats on some of these issues. But that's a far cry from advocating violence. Violence is wrong. I do not advocate but, violence. But I don't know any like Republicans Bobert are advocating are calling violence. People who are in
0: the LGBTQ community, she's using words like groomers, right? Which insinuates something that potentially could lead people to violence. I mean, is that going too far? Is that contributing to what we saw? I think we've look, seen I, them. Like I said. Make, Hold on, let make 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 me let Scott make answer make make that, make that make. and then let me come back to you, All Hillary. Right. Scott, can you answer my question? Yeah,
2: look, yeah, look I, like I said, I don't know of any Republican politicians who are out there calling on people to commit violence. And I think it's a pretty far jump. Now, these issues have become uh, hot-button issues uh, in America, and uh, certainly Republican politicians have picked up on it, uh, and some use heated rhetoric. But I I still, I defy you to find (laughs) a Republican member of Congress or anybody else who's out there saying, let's go commit violence against a particular community. I just don't think that's happening. And beyond that, we still don't know everything we need to know about this guy before those kinds of jumps are made. So mm-hmm. I, to me, I'm, 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 I'm waiting to see on this, but I I would just say violence is wrong. Rhetoric should be cooled down. But I think to ascribe violence to uh, people, r- Republican politicians that haven't called for that is not, is also not right.
0: Hillary, what's your response to that? And then Julia, well, I, I'll let you I, jump in.
4: I mean, I agree with Scott. I don't think that you know Republican Congress people who um, target legislatively uh, this community are are encouraging violence. I just think that you create an atmosphere that makes people feel threatened by um people who are different than them uh, in a way that makes it um, uh, uncomfortable for them and if you take combine that with a person who's mentally challenged who has issues who's you know sociopathic like there's a you are kind of lighting a match. And I think that that's the piece that people have to really think through. Are we doing everything we can to bring people together instead of making people feel bad about each other? And that's the piece I think that that the Republicans don't quite take into consideration. I don't want to politicize this horrible murder, but I do think that this conversation is kind of an important one to have over time. Clearly, Um, the uh, access to guns is a a particularly horrific tie between all of these mass shootings.
0: Juliet, we've got about 15 seconds. Quick last
3: word. Yes, I mean I agree with Hillary of course about the gun issue the capacity to kill so quickly but I just I want to talk about radicalization very quickly. It doesn't have to be asked for by a politician. Violence doesn't have to be asked for. I think what we have to ask ourselves and is 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 the rhetoric one in which which people will hear and feel that there's a permissive culture to, to attack, target, and then ultimately very small group to use violence against a a, a a class of people who have done no harm, who are just loving who they love. And, um, and so words like groomer, or even if the person saying that doesn't actually think, oh, I want this person to kill someone, they know by now, Scott, you know by now that by using that term, that is an insightful term. And so to be a responsible politician it uh, simply is if, if you know that that's likely how it's going to be interpreted, stop using it. You can have debates about gay marriage, uh, about um, uh, education of LGBTQ issues. You mm-hmm. could do that. But this name calling is the thing that becomes an acceptance. Right. And, and in other words, there's no shaming of this hate towards the LGBTQ community, the Jewish community, African-American community. And it's the shame that I think that right. we can bring back to the dialogue now.
0: All right, Juliette, Kayyem, thank you. Hillary Rosen, Scott Jennings, I really appreciate it. It's a a tough conversation, so thank you for having it with us tonight. I really appreciate it. Ahead, will the party of Trump make a break from Trump? Are Republicans closer than ever to seeking out a new leader? Development's there, next. number of Republican presidential possibilities spent the weekend in Las Vegas. The Republican Jewish Coalition's annual leadership meeting provided an opportunity for 2024 contenders to try and court the party's big money donors, many of whom have given in the past to the former president, Donald Trump. We heard this time around, though, lots of talk about moving forward. Some were more willing than others to talk about, obliquely, or to name Donald
2: Trump. Trump was saying that we'd be winning so much we'd get tired of winning. Well, I'm sick and tired of our party losing. The fact of the
1: matter is the reason we're losing is because Donald Trump has put himself before everybody else. Personality and celebrity just aren't going to get it done. We
4: have to look in the mirror. The Republican Party has lost the popular vote in the last seven out of eight presidential elections. That's saying something.
0: Okay, I'm joined by CNN political analyst Margaret Tala, Democratic strategist Paul Begala, and the former chief of staff to the Homeland Security secretary under Trump, Miles Taylor. Um, There was a lot to work with, Margaret, at this RJC. I don't know how many of you've covered. I've been out there several times to cover. It's one of the early kind of events on the presidential calendar. You go out there, you court uh, big donors. Um, They did seem to reflect a little bit of the change in tune that the GOP has had after the midterm election, but it also sounds an awful lot to me like 2015 when everybody thought Trump was going (laughs) to lose.
5: Yeah. Uh, If there's a sure way to empower Donald Trump, it's to have a whole bunch of candidates dividing up the rest of the vote, right? Right, right the thing that is obviously different this time is that in 2016, uh, the sort of um, line that Donald Trump could bring to the equation was, what have you got to lose? Or, you know, take a risk on a businessman, it'll be something different. We know what a Donald Trump presidency is like. So there's that. But I think what you're starting to see is this split stylistically and kind of brand-wise among the Republicans who would like to seek the nomination. There are Uh, The candidates like Ron DeSantis, who don't have to say Donald Trump's name and who are firmly kind of in the forefront of this ridiculously early stage. There are the candidates who have always branded themselves as critical of Trump or willing to speak outside the box. You've got Larry Hogan. And then there's like the Mike Pence lane, the Mike Pompeo lane, people who served closely in the Trump administration helped legitimize him for years until the very end Uh, when they they had no choice really but to step away. All that messaging is different. Then you've got the Nikki Haley, who I would say is taking a page from the Nancy Pelosi playbook, which is Pelosi has opened the door for people to say it's time for a new generation to make the age argument and to make it across party lines.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, But, I mean, look, Miles, you served in the administration. Obviously, there were a lot of people who, when he did get elected, I mean, I remember talking to senior Republicans who say, look, good people got to stick around here because if we don't, the whole thing's going to go off the rails. You know, we were, I think, all willing to buy that argument early on in the administration. By the end, you have January 6th, the complete collapse. Hang Mike Pence. Mike Pence now sort of won't criticize. I mean, what do you make of the way... I don't see any of them, while they're all saying, okay, the party needs something new, they're not like going after the man himself.
6: Yeah, yeah. Right? And that same, there's no other way to put it than cowardice. It sounds like a very strong word, but that same cowardice is what allowed Donald Trump to rise in the first place. Now, your point about the adults in the room thesis, I was one of the biggest progenitors of the thesis <laughs> that the adults in the room were keeping it in check, and I was completely abjectly wrong about that thesis. Why? Because it was very easy for Donald Trump to systematically dismantle those guardrails. However, at the same time, if Donald Trump became president again, I'd be one of the first to say, we still need good people to go into government. But exactly what Margaret said about this being a replay, we have seen this movie before. And what was so much more striking to me when you played those clips was that some of those same people were the same people saying the same things seven years ago. The Nikki Haley's, Mike Pompeo, when he was a member of the House behind the scenes, was saying those same things to me. You go down that list, they were saying the same thing. And now they're saying it less forcefully than they did then. Remember, Rick Perry called him a cancer on conservatism. And then served in his cabinet. They're not even striking <laughs> at his this And then there was Lindsey Graham, so remember? <laughs> I think this, I, right now, I would say the race, as early as it is, it very much favors Donald Trump the way it's constructed. Paul? What
7: do you yeah, think? well, it's because it's a winner take all system in the Republican Party, and a plurality politician can do very well in that. And that's what Trump is. Trump never.
0: So he's got, like a 25, 30% politician.
7: Right. Maybe. And within his party, even in up the to Republican, 40
0: In the Republican nominating contest.
7: And, and he can win a lot with that. You know, he never got 50 percent in Republican primaries until the 33rd state, which is New York, his home state. It didn't matter. So uh, I, I think people who are counting him out are wrong. I think he's formidable and he wants as many opponents as possible. Nobody could have been happier with the turnout at the RJC than <laughs> Mr. Trump. Yeah. Because he divides <laughs> up the anti-Trump vote. Like
5: the argument at this early stage that you're hearing from everyone from Paul Ryan to a lot of the people in the room there was that the reason uh, that it's time to move past Trump uh, for the party is a matter of winning because they mm-hmm. can't win with him. And what, I, what I'm what i not hearing at this stage is uh, the other argument, which is the, the reason for the party to move away from them is to redefine themselves around the rule of law or kind of right. the old norms of what are acceptable guardrails in politics uh, that, uh, you know, you have to support institutions that you can't tear everything down. Okay. That's not part of the argument. That may be for tactical reasons, because these candidates feel that the base of the party isn't ready to hear that, but it's an important moment to make that point, and I'm not hearing a lot of folks make the point. That's a good point. If you
7: have national security credibility, like Mike Pompeo, head of the CIA, head of the State Department, or, or uh, Nikki Haley, ambassador to the UN, why aren't they talking about Helsinki, the most shameful day a president's had on foreign soil the in my lifetime, where is he went to Helsinki endless, and he, he betrayed endless. our intelligence agencies and endorsed Putin? Why aren't they saying that?
6: Well, and I'm sorry, some of these people that are going to be running against Trump are the absolute worst people to be running against Trump because, as you know, they were the people who were his right-hand men. Mike mm-hmm. Pence, Mike Pompeo, these aren't people who can beat Trump by differentiating themselves. They're going to have a right. hard time right. creating any distance.
0: They, they try to criticize him. Trump's going to look at him and say, oh, what, you weren't saying that when you were you know, working with me every day. All right, stick around. Um, Trump's own former vice president has been distancing himself, as we've been talking about a little bit here, as he flirts with his own presidential bid. But Mike Pence is still really carefully parsing his words about his former boss and now potential 2024 rival. Why? We're going to ask Pence's former chief of staff, who joins us next. You may have seen one particular 2024 contender on television a lot lately. Donald Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence, was also out in Las Vegas but he noticeably still talks like this about the man who reportedly said he deserved to be hanged.
7: I couldn't be more proud of the record of the Trump-Pence
2: administration.
0: So Mark Short was the former vice president's chief of staff during this time. Mark, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Casey, thanks for having me. Um, you heard your former boss, current, you are a current confidant of the former vice president and, and close advisor of his um, why is he not willing to be more aggressive in confronting someone who, per Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony to the January 6th committee, Mark Meadows said that he, Trump, thinks Pence deserves it, meaning Trump, to, uh, meaning Pence deserves to be hanged.
8: I'm not going to try to excuse anything that happened on January 6th. In fact, I think January 6th was an important um, dividing line and i think it was one in which uh, the vice president tried to advise the president for weeks leading up to january 6 that he had no such authority that the president was arguing he should use but casey i probably reject the premise of your question i think even in the town hall that the former vice president did with cnn just last week he was very clear in saying that donald trump was a unique person for our party in 2016 but our party has at this point looking for a different leader and i think that that's that's what he believes but at the same time Incredibly proud of the record. He's not going to divorce himself from that record. Very proud of the fact that we actually have, you know, uh, 240 new federal judges on our courts, judges that actually stand and, and affirm the value of life. We actually did secure the border. We did and support Israel. The administration did do a lot of things in record tax relief. That He's not going to distance himself from that record. Sure. And I mean- if you look at that quote, he just says specifically, I'm incredibly proud of the Trump-Pence record.
0: Sure, no, I I take your point on the record, but still, when David Muir pressed him about, hey, you know, do we need somebody? Do you do you want Trump to run? I mean, he did, he did not say no. Clearly, he said yes. We have better choices. But I think I just it just it seems to me that the tone he could be much more. He knows so much. He was in the room. He was he could be talking about his experience in the Capitol and using that as in a way. I mean, we were talking about how all the other candidates also on the stage are sort of shying away from. Criticizing Trump directly, why is Pence shying away from it when he, frankly, had potentially the most harrowing experience of all?
8: He specifically said the president was wrong. He specifically said he had no such authority to overturn the election. If you've read the book, he does. Yeah, go no, very I, I know he says it in the book, but I'm I'm talking about when he's going to be out mix. in public. He said it multiple times out in public. He did it, in fact, in your town hall just on CNN last week. I don't don't think he's shying away from that. But at the same time, I think where many of the media want to do is to discredit the record as well. And that's not something he's going to contribute to. He's incredibly proud of the record of accomplishments during those four years.
0: All right. Um, So former members of the Trump administration, Bill Barr and Rod Rosenstein, are now out both saying that the DOJ has a case against former President Trump. I want to show you a little bit of what they've had to say and we'll talk about it.
6: I personally think that they probably have the basis for legitimately indicting the
2: president.
0: They still believe that they have a viable potential case. Um, You have been uh, obviously called in before and and worked on various legal uh, arguments against uh, the former president or or been party. To some of these cases. How does a Trump indictment potentially impact the former vice president's plans and the plans of other potential 2024 contenders?
8: I don't know that it impacts the former vice president's plans at all. I think that uh, to the extent that it impacts others, I think you have to ask them. But I do think that, um, I do think that it's an interesting development in naming a special counsel. I certainly think that both parties have abused special counsels over the last several decades. And I think the fact that this investigation has been going on for nearly two years To suggest that somehow now you're going to name a special counsel and say this is independent from what we've been doing, I think doesn't really. Meet the smell test. So, so
0: do you think the special counsel has credibility here?
8: No, I, I, I don't. And, I, and as you said, I think that, that Republicans have abused it before as well. And I think that you go back for the last several decades, whether or not it's starting, and I ran contra going through the Clinton and the, the Ken Starr investigation, all the way up till today, the special counsels typically don't have the same guardrails. And they abuse people's rights. And I think that you have an unlimited, usually budget, and you have you have an unlimited scope of an investigation And I think at this point, if the Department of Justice has had nearly two years to investigate this, then they should be able to make a determination whether or not there's evidence to move forth indictment or not.
0: Do you personally think that Donald Trump should face criminal liability for what occurred at the Capitol on January
8: 6th? I think that Donald Trump uh, disappointed the American people on that day. I think he let us all down. I think he let us down the weeks leading up to January 6th. So you don't think he's a criminal? It's hard for me to say that if you're listening to really terrible advice, that that would be a criminal act. And so I think that there are a lot of things that he were was wrong. the
0: president of the United States. I,
8: I totally agree. As I said, I think he entirely disappointed the American people and was a dereliction of his responsibilities. But I don't know. I don't know what evidence the Department of Justice has to be able to say there's an indictment to bring criminal charges.
0: What would you need to see? I mean, and does the vice president? The former vice president think he should face that Donald Trump. I think he's
8: answered that specifically, specifically, and said that uh, it's it's hard to see where, if you follow really terrible advice, that that's a criminal activity. So again, this incredible separation, believing that the vice president said, if I had done something different, I would have violated my oath, and therefore I I did not. But uh, to the extent that uh, the president should have criminal charges, I think that I don't know what evidence the Department of Justice has, but if they haven't brought something in 2 years i don't know where they're going to go with this
0: do the people who provided the advice should they go to jail or well, should they be criminally liable i
8: think there's no doubt that some of the lawyers who provide that advice provided um, counsel that was that was against the, the law i mean it was against the, they were basically advising to say here's what the vice you're president can do you're
0: talking about Powell, Rudy Giuliani? The, the,
8: the whole group including john eastman i think they clearly were giving advice from a legal counsel perspective that was asking the vice president to break his oath to the constitution
0: all right, Mark Short, thank you very much for coming in and providing AC, some perspective. For me. We appreciate it. I'm sure we're gonna be talking to you a lot in the months and ahead and years, I suppose, since we've got two before the next presidential election. Up next, what happens for the nation's politics if Twitter collapses? Will Donald Trump's reinstatement even matter? And what would all the other up and coming campaigns do without their favorite rapid response app? That's next. It's only been, if you can believe it, three weeks since the richest man in the world, Elon Musk, quote unquote, took the helm at Twitter. And since then, well, (laughs) there's been at least a kitchen sink full of drama. The mass layoffs, an employee exodus, accounts banned and unbanned, blue checks were given and then they were taken away. And just today, Twitter's head of U.S. News Partnerships announced he is leaving the company. While Musk, well, this afternoon, He tweeted, quote, hope all judgy hall monitors stay on other platforms, please, I'm begging you. Okay, so that's where we are. So Twitter with no hall monitors. What will that mean for the social media giant and, frankly, for the rest of us? Back with me now, Margaret Talbot, Paul Begala, and Miles Taylor. Um, Thank you guys uh, for coming back. Um, Look, I want to say, first of all, Twitter is not real life. It's very important (laughs) that we recognize that and underscore it. but it has become kind of this echo chamber for the political media narrative and a place that campaigns spend a lot of time, certainly reporters. I mean, you could argue reporters spend too much time on Twitter, but it has become a source of of, of conversation. And um, Paul, let me put this to you because I sort of, I feel like there are actually are some Democrats who are like maybe privately rooting for Donald Trump to actually start using the Twitter account <laughs> he received <laughs> back yesterday. Um, but I'm wondering, like, do you think it matters? Do you, does it have an impact uh, if Donald I Trump starts tweeting again?
7: I don't think that It is cl- It's the only social media I've ever been on. So it's, 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 it's overpopulated with uh, uh, <laughs> uh, politicos. Seriously, like hacks like me. Mean,
0: I don't want to ask you how old you are. But <laughs> but. The <laughs> very
7: first tweet I ever received, that seconds after I joined the platform, a guy wrote to me on Twitter and said, hey, Begala, why don't you drink rat poison and jump in a wood chipper?
0: Oh, that's actually pretty kind. Now, that shows that I go. can't take a hint.
7: Right. <laughs> so I've stayed on it for 10 years. I, I don't think it, Mr. Trump gets back on it. It undermines his investment in this right wing group that he's formed. If he doesn't, he loses the big platform. I, for one, couldn't care less. Uh, I've been much less on Twitter since Mr. Musk decided it needs a little more Anger and vitriol and divisiveness, and, and it's been good for my uh, blood pressure. There's so definitely I don't a lot miss more it.
0: spam on there, I've noticed. Oh, um, really? Miles, what do you think in terms of. I, from I'm going to take side. a
6: little bit of a different perspective than Paul and say that I, I actually think if Trump goes back on, and it's been extraordinary that he hasn't. I've got the alert set up. I'm waiting for the moment, <laughs> not that I want to. That that was You're PTSD better, <laughs> from four years of just waiting for every alert.
0: I'm probably but a bad reporter for not doing that. And, and, and I, I don't, don't think <laughs> he's
6: going to ultimately be able to resist. He's never resisted right. a spectacle. I do think it benefits enormously just from a purely transactional. He can reach a lot more people a lot more quickly. We have to wait for these Sherpas to show us things he's saying on Truth Social because none of us want to be on Truth Social. So I do think it gives him some power. At the same time, though, look, we replaced the horse and buggy with the car. We were fine. We were better for it. We replaced the bank teller with the ATM. If Twitter goes down and has to be replaced uh, by something, it probably will give me, Paul, and everyone else a little bit more Reprieve from the craziness, so I, it, it may be time to move on to some kind of new and better platform.
5: I mean, it's true that everything has a shelf life. Remember vine and Periscope and all the stuff. and Facebook mm-hmm. is not what it was now, what it was ten years ago and all that stuff. But having said that, like, as we lose the ability to have any civil public discourse about anything, yeah. as as political polarization and these kind of silos take root, Social media is one of the only town squares. It's a messed up, twisted town square. I'm afraid I'm gonna use a bad word, but it is still the town. Ta- it is still.
0: It's really yeah, It's very tempting to use. Words. Yeah, I'm, is, I'm, I'm with you. I'm right there with you. It's still uh,
5: <laughs> the town square, uh, and so I do think like just a few days ago there were all the elegies, the sarcastic elegies to Twitter. Like, if I knew that was gonna be my last tweet, I would have said whatever. And now, and and now it's like, oh my God, he let Trump back on, which. Suggests that everyone understands it's not going to blow up and go away. So I think we're in a period right now where nobody really knows what's going to happen. There are two other things that are true. If Twitter goes away immediately, it empowers TikTok. We all know what the problems are with TikTok. That's a very real and currently yeah. not regulated concern. It's a and,
6: national security disaster. And the, uh, yeah. and <laughs> the other...
5: Which, relate- by the
7: way, Trump was right about. Trump was, he was right uh, about uh, it. He was, he was flagging that the Chinese communists were driving this. Yeah. And, and I don't know why he didn't act on it, but I think he was probably right.
5: But I think, so separate from that concern is the inside Twitter concern, which is security, data, privacy, everyone's DMs. As long as Twitter lasts and as long as everyone at this table is hanging on, some having set alerts, others having not, like that is ripe for breaches right now. And I've read a really interesting analysis about how Elon Musk did the same kind of crazy pressure testing at SpaceX and at Tesla. But the difference is that there were not millions of people who were all actively engaging in the outcome of SpaceX and Tesla. Yeah, You know, that was a self-contained, you know, place where scientists and engineers operate. And this is a public gathering. And so when he publicly pressure tests it, millions of other people's lives and privacy gets drawn into it.
0: Yeah. And billionaires doing politics, they everyone, billionaires always think they can come in and do it. And then they inevitably are surprised by the system. Very quickly, Miles, the security concerns around Twitter's I mean, it has not collapsed. But as Margaret points out, there are potential vulnerabilities and problems. You worked on some of this stuff at DHS. How worried are you about that?
6: Uh, a great deal. Um, you know, look, some of the people who've left Twitter are some of the best Internet security folks out there uh, or people that are getting ready to leave that organization. I spent years looking at what our foreign adversaries were doing on social networks. It works. They know it works. Mm-hmm. They know they can manipulate our you know population. You can guarantee right now that in Moscow and Beijing, they're looking at this, trying to find points of leverage that they can exploit to try to undermine the American political system. That's a guarantee.
0: Very important story to keep an eye on. All right, Margaret Talith, Paul Begala, Miles Taylor. Always fun to have all of you on set. Thank you so much. You. Really appreciate it. Coming up, the World Cup faces worlds of controversy. Wearing this armband could put some of the top soccer players in the game. On the bench, our diversity and inclusion being blocked? A former World Cup champion who made history on the field joins us to discuss next. It's the most popular sporting event in the world. And yet, what ha- what is happening off the field is getting some fans more riled up than the games themselves. Qatar is the host country for the World Cup this year. And they say, quote, Everybody's welcome. It's a great sentiment, in theory, except that homosexuality is illegal in the country, punishable by prison time. Team USA, along with several other countries, had planned to express their support for the LGBTQ community by wearing rainbow armbands on the field. But at the last minute, FIFA banned this show of support, threatening anyone who wears the bands with a yellow card. We have a great voice here to weigh in. U.S. Hall of Fame goalkeeper, World Cup champion, and two-time Olympic gold medalist, Brianna Scurry. She was one of the first openly gay women on the U.S. soccer team. Uh, Brianna, thank you so much for joining us. And I know I, I, we're going to talk about all the serious stuff we just went, went through, but can you, like, the one thing, I, I have trouble getting my family excited about the fact there was a draw in the game today, <laughs> in the men's game. <laughs> so yep. what did you take away from the game? What's next for our team?
9: Oh, uh, it's really unfortunate because 84% of the time, if you win your first game, you go through your group to into the knockout rounds. So I was a little bummed out about it. But we're still in it. We're still in it. We got to play England on Friday. um, Really tall, tall order there. But we still got a chance of getting through. So, so tell your family to stay at it and 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 keep keep with the team. Yeah,
0: no, we have a, we have a very good friend who grew up in England. So it's gonna it's gonna split our battle. social circle <laughs> down the middle, uh, just in time for Thanksgiving. Yes. Um, but let's let's turn to what's going on here because I'm honestly the Cutter's position on this, and also FIFA's enforcement of it. I, what do you make of that? And what should we think of particularly? I'm wondering about FIFA, which is this organization that represents countries around the world and their decision to handle it this way.
9: Well, what I've said is with FIFA, when you pick the country, you pick the consequences. So years ago, when FIFA picked Qatar for the World Cup, they picked the Qatarian um, rules and regulations and laws, and they knew that these laws were on the books then, and so they chose this. And so now, unfortunately, maybe they were hoping it was going to be a little bit more lax about these types of things, but clearly not. I can picture... Um, both sides in a hotel room in Doha, downtown somewhere, arguing with each other about this thing. And so FIFA probably said, you know, we, we have to show some solidarity, some, some understanding of this. So instead of this wonderful, great idea of the One Love armband, they decided to do the no discrimination armband, um, which is black and white, a lot more muted um, support. And so um, it's unfortunate, but FIFA makes a lot of mistakes. They, they have a lot of different things that go sideways right when the tournament starts that unfortunately ruins the football Um, and they're doing it again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How would you feel you've played in four World Cup tournaments as someone who is openly gay I mean would you feel comfortable playing in the World Cup there?
9: I wouldn't I wouldn't feel comfortable at all I mean we're talking about jail time potentially uh, for being myself for being who I am um and it's, it's very disheartening. It's very alarming. Um, but like I said, unfortunately, FIFA makes these decisions that a lot of times put players in compromising positions. And it's it's really unfortunate. Um, but the good news is, I will say, is this topic is getting a lot of press. It's getting a lot of coverage. It's getting a lot of conversation. And, and that's actually backfiring in the face of FIFA and in Qatar.
0: Yeah. I mean, so the the, the boss said, and I think this quote, Um, you know, stood out to a lot of people, that there is a double standard. Um, He said, quote, what we Europeans have been doing for the past 3,000 years, we should be apologizing for the next 3,000 years before we start giving moral lessons to people. I I mean, I think he's trying to make a point about colonialism there. What what is your response to that?
9: My first response was, what? (laughs) (laughs) And then my second response was, I think he is talking about um, colonization. And so um, that's just... It's a little absurd, actually, to say that, because he had an opportunity to make a difference today with the situation. Had he fallen on the side of allowing these players to make a stand and to use their platforms to to bring more awareness and solidarity and support to um, people all over the country, all over the world with inclusion, he blew it. And so now he wants to say this other statement about, well, we should have done this 3,000 years and this and and unfortunately, he had his moment where he could have made a difference, and he chose not to.
0: What's it really about? Is it about money?
9: <sighs> about power, I think. Power. Yeah. Always. Unfortunately, one the other.
0: <laughs> All right, yeah. Brianna, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for we Really me. appreciate your time. Thanks so much for watching. I will be back tomorrow night, and our coverage continues right now with Allison Camarada.
1: Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.